Section 5 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Revolution. In August 1687, James II went on a royal progress to reconcile the people to the late changes and to judge of their temper. During this progress, Lord Churchill waited upon him and seized an opportunity when alone with the king in the dean's garden at Westminster to represent to him the alarm with which his measures had inspired the great mass of the people, reminding him that he himself and at least nine-tenths of the English people were determined to live and die in the Protestant faith. James II angrily interrupted him, I tell you, Churchill, he exclaimed, I will exercise my own religion in such a manner as I think fitting. I will show favor to my Catholic subjects and be a common father to all my Protestant subjects of what religion soever, but I am to remember that I am king and to be obeyed by them. As for the consequences, I shall leave them to providence and make use of the power God has put into my hands to prevent anything that shall be injurious to my honour or derogatory to the duty that is owing to me. Nothing could teach James II wisdom. In his narrow-minded bigotry, he clung pertinaciously to his own ideas and would only listen to those who agreed with him. Even the moderate Roman Catholics disapproved of his violent measures and would have infinitely preferred a toleration obtained by legal means. The Pope himself disapproved of his policy and received his ambassador coldly. But James II committed one arbitrary act after another throughout the winter till it seemed as if every post in the kingdom was to be filled by a papist. In April 1688, he published a second declaration of indulgence to show that his mind was unchanged since last April and ordered it to be read in all churches at the time of divine service for two successive Sundays. The clergy, who a few years before had proclaimed from the pulpit with zeal the doctrines of the divine right of kings and of passive obedience, refused almost to a man to obey the royal command. Archbishop Sancroft and six bishops, who were then in London, held a meeting in which they drew up a moderate petition to James II against the indulgence. Furious at this conduct, James II determined to punish the bishops. He found that the only way in which he could proceed against them was by prosecuting them for seditious libel. Proceedings were opened, and the bishops who refused to accept bail were taken to the tower, followed by crowds who hailed them as martyrs, and kneeling around them, implored their blessing. At the trial, in spite of all the endeavors of the government, a verdict of not guilty was returned, which was received with tumultuous rejoicings by the people. Even at the camp at Hounslow, the soldiers on whom James II thought he could rely raised a shout of joy when they heard that the bishops were acquitted. Whilst the bishops were in the tower, on the 10th of June, 1688, the Queen gave birth to a son. She had had four children before, but none had outlived infancy, and it was five years since the last had been born. 
in their excited temper men suspected that the child was not really the queen's and that an heir to the throne was being palmed off upon them before the child was born papists had confidently predicted that it would be a son the great mass of the nation now looked upon the whole affair as a papist hoax at any rate whether the true child of james the second or not it was certain that the little prince would be brought up as a catholic men could no longer look forward to the end of the tyranny under which they groaned there could be no hope of the peaceable accession of mary and william on the day of the acquittal of the bishops a letter was dispatched to william of orange at the hague containing an invitation to him to land in england with some troops he was assured that thousands would at once flock to his standard this letter was signed by seven of the leading personages who had for some time been in communication with william all men of high rank and position the earls of shrewsbury devonshire and danby lord lumley edward russell henry sidney and compton bishop of london william saw that his time was come many difficulties still surrounded him but he began with diligence to prepare for an expedition to england new offers of aid and support arrived daily even sunderland james the second's chief minister and the supporter of all his schemes who had been willing in order to please james the second secretly to profess himself a catholic opened communications with william he saw that there was no hope that james the second would be able to maintain himself and thought it wisest to provide for the future by offering to communicate to william the most secret plans of james the second and his government churchill assured william that he would do his utmost to bring the army over to him and wrote if you think there is anything else that i ought to do you have but to command me nothing could rouse james the second from his obstinate folly to the last he could not believe in the danger which was clear to every one else the only step he took made matters worse thinking to increase the forces at his command he brought over some irish troops which irritated to the last degree both the english soldiers and the people who looked upon the irish as papist barbarians on october tenth william published his declaration in which after drawing attention to james the second's illegal acts he stated that at the invitation of many lords spiritual and temporal he was about to invade england for the purpose of securing a free and legal parliament by the decision of which he would abide on the fifth of november sixteen eighty eight he landed at torbay in devonshire and soon after entered exeter his landing in the west of england had not been looked for and the preparations of his friends there were not ready so that william was at first mortified by finding that no persons of importance joined him though the people everywhere hailed him as their deliverer meanwhile james the second had at last been roused to a sense of his danger and was trying by every possible means to win back the favour of his people he promised at once to summon a parliament he abolished the court of high commission and conferred with those bishops who were in london as to the means he had best take but the people were not in a mood to value highly concessions which they saw had only been wrung from him by fear day by day 
james the second heard of new persons of importance who had gone to join william the army had been sent on to salisbury and james the second set out to join it himself he heard that in the north the nobility and gentry were rising in william's favour and he was anxious to engage william in battle before his position was more secured but at salisbury he soon saw signs that his army could not be trusted one night lord churchill and the duke of grafton a natural son of charles the second stole away to join the prince of orange churchill left a letter behind him in which he tried to explain away his treachery by saying that only the inviolable dictates of his conscience and a necessary concern for his religion could have led him to take such a step adding i will always with the hazard of my life and fortune endeavour to preserve your royal person and lawful rights james the second was still further alarmed by hearing that others of his officers refused to obey his commands he felt that his own person was not safe and in alarm broke up his camp and ordered the army to retreat on london everything was in confusion as the army retreated one by one the nobles who had accompanied james deserted he reached london only to hear that his daughter the princess anne had fled to join the rebels in the north accompanied by lady churchill and compton bishop of london and it soon became clear that only two courses were open to him either he must submit to the will of the nation and enter into negotiations with the prince of orange or else he must fly james the second was determined to do anything rather than submit he professed to be willing to enter into negotiations with william so as to gain time for his wife and child to escape to france when he had heard of their arrival there he fled himself to join them having first destroyed all the writs which had been prepared for summoning a new parliament he hoped to make matters more difficult for his enemies by leaving everything in confusion behind him and as he crossed the thames he flung the great seal into the water he had also left orders that feversham was immediately to disband the army when his flight was discovered the greatest terror reigned in the city there was no government no one owned the authority necessary to keep order it might be several days before william could reach london till then it seemed as if the mob would have full license to rob and plunder at their will at this alarming moment prompt measures were taken by such peers and prelates as were then in london together with the city council they formed themselves into a provisional government to maintain order till the prince should arrive james the second's flight made it easy even for the most staunch supporters of the prerogative conscientiously to take up the part of the prince of orange for it was impossible to pay obedience to a king who had voluntarily abdicated his kingdom matters were complicated by the capture of james the second at sheerness whilst he was trying to escape the lords ordered him to be set at liberty and he once more came back to london william who was then at windsor saw that it would be impossible to keep order if both he and james the second were in london at the same time after much deliberation 
he sent some of his troops before him to occupy the city and sent orders to james the second to leave westminster at once james the second asked to be allowed to go to rochester and permission was gladly given william and all his friends wished nothing more than that james the second would again try to escape james the second knew that they wished it and saw well that it was the worst thing he could do but fear had completely unnerved him and he only longed to feel himself far away from his enemies he was so negligently guarded that escape was easy and before many days were over he was safe in france where louis the fourteenth received him with tender cordiality and gave him the palace of st germain as his residence william's first steps were full of difficulties the machinery of government was destroyed and he could not consistently with his declaration assume the power of king and act as conqueror he first summoned a meeting of the peers and a meeting of all those members who had sat in the parliaments of charles the second and then in conformity with their desires provisionally assumed the government and issued writs to summon a convention of the free estates of the realm his wise measures soon brought back a feeling of order and security and the elections were quietly and speedily carried on when the convention met for a time a great difference of opinion showed itself between the different parties as to the steps which were to be taken some wished for a regency others that mary should be queen alone others again that william should be king and his wife only queen consort for a time william kept himself aloof from the discussion and did not allow his own opinion to be known but at last he made it clear that he would consent neither to be a regent nor to be the subject of his wife mary too on learning the way in which her rights were advocated by some wrote a letter in which she stated that she would never be queen alone at this crisis her perfect devotion to her husband helped to make clear the only course which could safely be taken it was decided to offer the crown jointly to mary and william by the influence of the churchills anne was brought to waive her rights so far as to consent that should william survive his wife he should be king for his lifetime but should have no power of passing on the crown to children born to him by any wife but mary on the twelfth of february sixteen eighty nine mary landed in england and on the thirteenth william and mary were proclaimed king and queen amidst general rejoicing before accepting the crown they had given their adhesion to a document called the declaration of right which bound them to govern in accordance with the principles of the english constitution this declaration stated that the dispensing power claimed by james the second had no legal existence that no sovereign could raise money or maintain a standing army without the consent of parliament that the nation had a right to free representation in parliament so this great revolution was peaceably accomplished the rights of the people were once more clearly affirmed and the attempt of the stuarts to set up a personal monarchy ended in complete failure henceforth it became impossible for any monarch in england to govern without the support of parliament or to rule except in accordance with the will of his people End of section five.